0: Hey everybody, CJ here. Welcome to episode 145 of the Dangerous History Podcast. And originally episode 145 was going to be my episode returning to the Not-So-Civil War series, The Grunt's-Eye Perspective. Right, looking at the war from the point of view of the kind of common soldiers. And rest assured, I am still very hard at work on that behind-the-scenes, putting in a lot of hours on research and composing my outline and notes and everything for that episode. But as so often happens when I delve really deeply into a topic, it is taking me longer to um, consume all the sources that I really want to consume and really kind of put everything together in a way that hopefully will not only make a lot of sense, but will be as entertaining, as riveting as possible. But While that was still going on, I had the chance to talk with Scott Horton, who many of you know. He's been on the show once a while back already, and Scott is the managing director of the Libertarian Institute, host of Anti-War Radio, and host of the Scott Horton Show podcast. And you could check him out at scotthorton.org and libertarianinstitute.org, and also he's the opinion editor at antiwar.com and is a very prolific... Radio and podcast host has conducted well over 4,000 interviews with all kinds of experts, mostly having to do with war and foreign policy. So he's the guy I always refer people to when they ask me, is there a good source that I can consult on kind of current events and what's going on in terms of wars and foreign policy? And he's recently published the book Fool's Errand, Time to End the War in Afghanistan, which is a great overview of America's war in Afghanistan all the way up through 2017 and is just packed full of information that almost every page I learned something new in reading this book. So I was very happy to have the chance to talk to Scott. Unfortunately, there were some audio difficulties. The Skype gods were being a little bit problematic. And I think I may have accidentally messed up a couple of settings, too, and not realized it. It didn't um, come through on, on sort of my end of things. And I did my best to work with what I had. But, you know, it's not the greatest audio quality in the world. And for that, if you're an audio snob, I apologize. But I still think it's a great conversation, and it was great to speak to Scott about all this stuff. But before we get into that, I do have some Patreon shoutouts to give out, some thank yous to excellent individuals who have stepped up to support the show via patreon.com slash prof and i really could use all the support i can get so if you've been thinking about whether or not to support the show i hope you'll pull the trigger on it soon but big thanks since my last episode which was a while ago but remember it was a three-hour monster of an episode um since the last episode i published the following awesome people have stepped up to support the show sam michael r reed deli lama villa and forgive me if I mispronounced that. I'm not sure if it's Villa or Vili. And um, Tim, thanks to all of you very much for helping to support the show. And also some Amazon thank yous, folks who have gotten me stuff off the Amazon wish list that I always link to. So thanks to a mystery benefactor. It arrived without a note or a name. A mystery benefactor for ordering me what looks like a very interesting book, Progressive Punishment, Job Loss, Jail Growth, and the Neoliberal Logic of Carceral Expansion by Judah Shept. And to Lee, this one I know who's from, it's from Lee, for the book Orwell Your Orwell, A Worldview on the Slab by David Ramsey Steele. And one more thank you to a mystery benefactor. This book arrived with a very nice note, but then didn't have a name along with it either, So or with it too. So, Um, Thanks to whoever it was for ordering me, In the Shadows of the the American Century, The Rise and Decline of U.S. Global Power by Alfred McCoy, which I've long been a fan of Alfred McCoy, so it looks like a very interesting book as well. So three very great books, thanks to those of you who ordered those for me. I appreciate it. And one more thing before we get to my conversation with Scott, and that is the image for this episode— at profcj.org slash ep145, which is the show notes for this episode, you'll see there's a painting there of a rather haggard-looking soldier. looks like he's about to just keel over and fall off of the horse that he's riding on in a very desolate landscape. And this is a 19th century painting that is entitled Remnants of an Army, by the British painter Elizabeth Thompson. And the painting was done in 1879, but is supposed to depict a scene from one of the British incursions into Afghanistan in 1842. This is supposed to be depicting like sort of the last survivor of the famous British retreat from Kabul. And I put this as the picture for the show notes for this episode. And I hope you'll take a look at it if you're not familiar with this painting. It's a, it's a very um, striking painting. And to me, it's just a wonderful symbol of that famous graveyard of empires, Afghanistan, that like literally so many great empires have tried to conquer it and ultimately failed, whether in the short or long run, that it's really just Incredible that Team America is still at this after 16 years now. Um, 16 years this month as I record this, September of 2017. And still going at it, still trying to win some kind of victory, whatever the hell that even means in Afghanistan. Try and pull something off that Alexander the Great, the British Empire, the Russians, all kinds of people have failed to do. And it's absolute hubris and lunacy, and. Without further ado, I present my conversation with Scott about his book on America's War in Afghanistan. Okay, so I'm here today talking with Scott Horton, of course, of the Scott Horton Show and the Libertarian Institute about his recently published book, which is Fool's Errand, Time to End the War in Afghanistan. And um, I have to say, with, a, with such a subtle uh, title and subtitle, I, I almost think still I might be able to guess the book's main argument before I, before I read it. But um, Scott, welcome back to the Dangerous History Podcast. Thank you very much for having me well i have to say first off um just congratulations on completing the book i can only (laughs) imagine what a massive um, undertaking this was i mean i've begun writing a few different books myself but never came anywhere close to finishing any of them so you know i i always just respect the hell out of anyone who finishes a book to begin with but especially a book like this that's so detailed and meticulously researched. So congratulations. You have my respect for sure. Thank you very much. Yeah, I'll
1: go ahead and tell you it was hard. Yeah, <laughs> it took me almost a year and a half. Oof. And, uh, yeah, it was, you know, there's, uh, 1150 footnotes, but that's actually like 1500 citations. Cause there's a lot of multiple citations per footnote. And that Yeah. Kind
0: of- yeah. You know, that was another thing I was going to specifically call, co- uh, compliment you on because as a historian as a a guy with um, a master's degree in history and all that stuff like man I was impressed by the footnotes um, how many there were and in good proper Chicago format I really appreciated that and um, I, I already like highlighted a bunch of the footnotes where you know something where I'm just like whoa you know some little some little anecdote or some little factoid just blew my mind I was like all right I gotta go You know, read that book or read that article. So very impressive with the footnotes. I think when I tried to really
1: double and triple them up on the most controversial points. So if I'm going to claim, for example, that Muslims denounce terrorism all the time, Muslim leaders denounce terrorism all the time. Well, on that page, that page itself, I think maybe page eight is about (laughs) two thirds footnotes and one third text because I just try to absolutely overkill and leave no more room for argument, at least on that narrow point. I you know, but the more controversial ones um I try to overly prove in as many ways as I can,
0: yeah, well, you have to, especially when you're taking an outside the mainstream tack you know when you're when you're making an argument that goes against what quote unquote everybody knows um, and look, to, I'm not pretending that I speak Pashto or have
1: spent any time whatsoever in Afghanistan. I've never left North America, so you know my expertise comes from spending a long time really this whole time, interviewing experts and paying attention and opposing the war, you know, really without cease since it started, and just as an interview host myself, having access to people like Patrick Coburn and Eric Margulies and Anand Gopal, and all of these people who know everything about it. And, and you know, I've had the ability to ask them follow-up questions basically this daily this whole time. Access to every expert I want to interrogate however I want. And so, you know, I have not personal experience, but a lot of secondhand experience to try to compile. So I had to try to you know, prove it everywhere I could because there's nowhere that I can say, trust me, because I'm the expert myself, because that's really not true.
0: Right, yeah. I mean, in the history world, it's kind of what we would call maybe a, a work of synthesis where you're kind of pulling together all these different things from people who are, are – you know, real specific subject matter experts and then kind of piecing it together into one thing, because as far as I know, and I'm sure, you know, you, you've probably looked into this like there's not really another good book that just focuses on this war and kind of puts it all together. Well, not in
1: eight years anyway. The last one, I mean, there's a lot of great books about Afghanistan, but as far as making the argument that this whole thing shouldn't be fought and we should end it now, it's been since Nick Turse put out the case for withdrawal. But at right as Obama was coming into power, but even that was a collection of really great essays and I quote it heavily in my book uh, all the different all the great work in there but um i I think this one stands alone as an attempt to analyze the whole war and say that we should call it
0: quits yeah um i I've probably learned a new little fact about something on almost every page and I'm better informed than just kind of the average walking around American, I think. But on the other hand, like still, there's there was a lot of things where just like some, some little fact about something or some little anecdote just um, sort of blew my mind. Now, when you started working on this book, you said about a year and a half uh, working on it, although I guess you could say that in a way you've been working on it like since you started, you know, talking about the war uh, in Afghanistan. But... When you started working on the book, was it mostly a case of like collecting uh, sources and information that you already knew and just sort of putting them together? Or did you uh, dig up a bunch of new stuff that was even new to you as well?
1: Oh, That's a good question. I mean the, the funny thing is this was supposed to just be chapter two. I was trying to write a book where chapter one was going to be what's now chapter one of this book, getting into this mess, Carter through Clinton years. And then this was supposed to be chapter two. And then the rest of the book was supposed to be one chapter on each of the wars, Iraq, Pakistan, Yemen, Somalia, Libya, Syria, the Islamic State and all of this. And it was supposed to be just real kind of brief and simple, um, not for dummies, but just in brief sort of a summary of debunking the whole terror war. And at first I got way bogged down writing about the Carter through Clinton years. And that in itself was about 50,000 words or something before I finally moved on from that and then once i started writing about afghanistan i already knew what i wanted to say i already know all about it so i you know kind of wrote my outline and i thought well i can do this i can knock this out you know but then the war is 16 years long so the more i started writing it uh the more i'm like well look i have to have a chapter about guantanamo bay you know and i can't you know i can't not have that and then Definitely got to cite that Anand Gopal chapter where he talks about PKZ, the rapist warlord, or, you know, whatever it is, comes up. And, you know, got to talk about heroin, got to talk about this, got to talk about that. And, you know, I guess once it was about 50,000 words or so, I decided, well, I mean, apparently this is going to be its own book. So I kept writing it until about last September. I finished my first draft. And then I went and read about 15 books, which I know a real scholar probably read 50 or something. But I can't and couldn't. Um, I'm not on any kind of graduate student stipend or anything. here, So I read about 15 books, um, took all the best notes that I could, uh, and then went and incorporated as much of what I learned into the text, correcting and elaborating and getting stuff righter than before. But more or less, I think my overall theme and, and narrative held up. Uh, call it confirmation bias when you're done reading the book everybody else see what you think but um but uh yeah no i mean i mean really what everybody should do is read a non-gopal's book no good men among the living and that'll once you actually read a book from a guy who's really spent so much time there on the ground there in all parts of the country and doing these in-depth profiles of these characters including a former member of the taliban and a lady that was oppressed by them and All these different people, um, you'll have a a much better picture of what it's like to be there, what the country is compared to reading a a book like mine, which is – I mean I don't mean to keep knocking my own book, but Anand Gopal, he's the real champion here, everybody. That's the truth.
0: Okay. Well, I'll definitely throw that book, which I've not read um, in the show notes alongside yours, and any other particular ones that that kind of you know complement your book or dovetail with your book that that you can – list off
1: well sure i'm i mean it depends on the section in fact in the book i have two separate bibliographies one of them is just on torture and because i i got to a point where i was like this is too long i've got to stop now so i finally just left a footnote and said for more about torture read here and then the footnote became more than a full page so i went ahead and made it an appendix and then um And then I have a separate appendix for the rest of the book for Afghanistan stuff. But, uh, you know, I could not recommend Eric Margulies more highly and War at the Top of the World, which is about his experience covering the 80s and 90s wars there in Afghanistan and also American Raj, Liberation or Domination. Both have incredible sections about Afghanistan. And then um can't pronounce these guys' names, but they're in the book. They wrote a book called An Enemy We Created. That's just – it's an absolutely exhaustive study. I mean it's overkill by ten of the nature of the relationship between the Taliban and Al-Qaeda and how Al-Qaeda always looked down on the Taliban as a bunch of redneck hillbillies. And the Taliban always resented them for bringing the wrath of the American world empire to come and destroy their fledgling regime. And and in fact, you know, threatening it, getting them in trouble with the U.S. from the time bin Laden came to Afghanistan, returned there in 1996. So, but anyway, they just go into such depth. And that was a real great one. And then there's uh, When More is Less by Ostri Serki. Uh, I'm sure I'm pronouncing her name wrong, but anyway. Um, uh, when More is Less, and it's about how all the aid... That the Americans and the other Western powers give even meaning well, every bit of it is counterproductive, and that it would how she just shows how it would be better if every one if every dollar was just burnt rather than going into circulation in Afghanistan because all it does is engender corruption and criminality, and it distorts markets so that uh you know it's all foreign corporations who get all the work anyway. And, you know, no trickle down happens whatsoever from any of it. you have, you know, like the Emerald City, not even the green zone. You have the Emerald City basically of zillions of dollars of foreign aid money coming into Kabul while you have people literally starving in Kabul where hunger is, you know, a widespread problem to this day just because the economics of all that foreign intervention and even creating the provincial reconstruction teams to go out and help the people. Well, all that does is still undermine the overall project, which supposedly was strengthening up the central government and giving them the responsibility of doing all these projects for everyone. So instead, the Americans are just, at the same time they're trying to build up a government, they're creating all these parallel structures that compete with it and and end up causing more problems. And this is all just the do-gooder stuff, right? This isn't the war. This is just all the State Department and NGO, this and that, and how counterproductive every bit of it is. And then, of course, there's the great Patrick Coburn, who was there at the very start of the war. Um, there's uh, Taliban by Ahmed Rashid, who wrote all about you know the rise of the Taliban in the 1990s. There's Jawbreaker by Gary Burnson, who was the CIA officer, who was the second one in charge of the initial war, who complained quite bitterly about Bush and Cheney's refusal to allow him to call in the Rangers and Marines to uh, help corner and kill bin Laden and Zawahiri at Tora Bora in December of 2001, and I could go on. In fact, if you go to the Amazon page, I think on the look inside, it'll let you look at the appendices, and everybody can look at the bibliographies there if you want.
0: Right, although, of course, I'll urge everyone, start with Scott's book and then branch out from there, but... You know, it's it's very helpful to know some of these ones that go into detail on like you know particular. Oh, and don't let me leave out Michael Hastings, the operators about the
1: the Crystal Petraeus surge at the beginning of the Obama years. There by the late great Michael Hastings,
0: right, right, yeah, invaluable. So it's sounding like you're very skeptical of the official Team America uh, narrative of what's going on and why it hasn't worked and so don't you know scott that movies and tv teach america all they need to know about all this stuff about foreign policy and wars and team america's field trips don't you know from like I don't know, Charlie Wilson's war and things like that, and all the nice looking people with suits and ties on TV. Don't you know that the reason 9 11 happened was because Team America didn't get more involved in Afghanistan when the Soviets left and wasn't interventionist enough in the 90s? And that's why the Taliban and Al Qaeda, who are actually uh, pretty much the same people, they took over and they did 9 11 because they hate our freedom. And then uh, George W. Bush and Team America had no choice but to go in and take over because the Taliban wouldn't hand over bin Laden and his people. And the only reason Team America hasn't won this war yet is we just haven't sent enough troops and spent enough money there and killed enough people. So, yeah, I think that's kind of all of the kind of I think you got the narrative memorized. All right. Yeah, I think I got the whole thing. I think I didn't leave any important point out. So. All right. So so that's the establishment Team America story. Now uh what's wrong with it? The the glyph notes version of course.
1: Yeah. Well, first of all, the Charlie Wilson's War thing. Uh, of course that i'm you know, for people familiar or if you're not familiar, this is a reference to Ronald Reagan's support for the Mujahideen in their war against the Soviets in the 1980s. And then it's true at the end of that movie it says, "Yeah, you know, if only we had stayed then" If only H.W. Bush and Bill Clinton had doubled and tripled down and built a giant nation and befriended the Afghan people, then everything would have just been perfectly fine, etc. And yet the fact of the matter is, I mean, I guess Bush senior. Um, in fact, I read one thing that said he was surprised to find out that the CIA was still backing the Mujahideen after the Soviets had left. And he was, why would they be doing that? Or He, he was a little bit hands off about that. Bill Clinton, on the other hand, supported Saudi Arabia and Pakistan in their efforts, gave the green light. They asked permission. America's the world empire. No question about it. They were acting in accordance with American wishes, the Saudis and the Pakistanis, as they helped to install the Taliban in power to end the Mujahideen civil wars of the first half of the 1990s and to consolidate power in that country. And as I detail in the book, They specifically pushed for a Taliban victory over the Northern Alliance rather than any form of negotiated solution because they wanted a full monopoly, totalitarian Taliban state in that country. As they put it, it'll be like Saudi Arabia, no parliament, lots of Sharia law and a pipeline from Turkmenistan down through Pakistan, and we can live with that. What's wrong with that? That was the Clinton administration's official position is they wanted to, as they put it, undercut Russia and their dominance over Caspian Basin, oil supplies, and transit routes. And so that was the policy in the 1990s. America never left them alone. America supported various Mujahideen factions up until America supported the Taliban's war against all of those other factions in order to finally consolidate and bring the country to peace. And then in 2001, after, and I'll get back to the relationship between the two groups again, but after America invaded, then they just switched the policy right back again, and uh, took the side of the Northern Alliance, and put them in power, and made them the new government, and drove their old, sort of, kind of friends, the Taliban, out of power. And as far as the Taliban being indistinguishable from Al-Qaeda, that's certainly the narrative that especially in the early days of this thing. I mean, you know, I was a cab driver when this first happened, so I got to do a lot of kind of first-person anecdotal surveys with people and what they thought about things. And they really, I think, a lot of the time they couldn't even stop and tell themselves for a minute that, wait, those really are actually different words. Al-Qaeda and Taliban. How come sometimes we call them Al-Qaeda and sometimes we call them Taliban? They wouldn't even ask themselves that. They wouldn't even parse it that carefully. Be, but it didn't matter because both words meant the same thing. Those bad guys over there that attacked us. And but in fact, Al-Qaeda was a group of guys who were left over what were called Arab Afghans. And there there are no Arabs in Afghanistan from Afghanistan. The ethnicities in Afghanistan are the Pashtuns, the Hazaras, the Uzbeks, and the Tajiks. The Arabs are from the other side of Iran from there, right, everybody? The Persians live in Iran. You got to go a couple thousand miles to the west is Arab lands. So people tell me they're confused about that, and I should clarify. So I do. Um, But so all these Arabs had traveled to fight during Jimmy Carter and Ronald Reagan's war in the 1980s when America supported the Mujahideen, and... Then after that war, they had gone home, and um, later on, they you know ended up becoming Al Qaeda, and then going in going to Afghanistan, basically in exile. So Afghanistan Afghanistan's the farthest end of the earth, and that's you know they basically fled to there. But uh, the Taliban regime was basically stuck with them. It's first of all, they were fighters. I mean, Bin Laden himself was wounded in battle, and and the people with him, they had fought with the Taliban and the Mujahideen, or the, you know, proto-Taliban, they didn't really exist as the Taliban then, but some of the same people involved in the Taliban had fought in that war. Um, And so they were due that honor, you know, under their way of looking at things. And plus the Pashtun Wali cultural tribal code says that you always protect a guest no matter what. You give up your own son before you give up a guest. That's, you know, the way that they live. It's kind of a badlands part of the world, and those are the sort of mores that help people get by um, in in places like that. And that's how their tribal culture has evolved. So anyway, um, at the same time, though, the Taliban hated al-Qaeda. Because the al-Qaeda guy, I mean, the Taliban really were a bunch of hillbillies, and the al-Qaeda guys really weren't. I mean, bin Laden is a son of a billionaire with an engineering degree, Zawahiri's a surgeon from Egypt, and all the rest of these guys, and they really looked down on The Taliban, like they were white trash kind of a thing. Uh, They had that kind of difference. And bin Laden would not swear loyalty to Mullah Omar, except through a deniable proxy, sent someone else to do it for him so that later he could say that he did or didn't, whichever the question demanded. And and as they show in the book, An Enemy We Created, uh, Mullah Omar had told bin Laden directly to his face repeatedly that listen, you're going to mind your manners, you're going to behave, you're going to refrain from any attacks outside of this country, etc. That wasn't some line. That wasn't some lie. That was the truth. That That was Mullah Omar's relationship with bin Laden was, you better behave and then bin Laden would say, oh yes sir, sir, and then misbehave anyway, and attack American interests anyway, because in his view he was perfectly happy to sacrifice the Taliban regime, and for that matter the population of Afghanistan. If it meant the ability to replicate that 80s war against the Soviet Union against the United States. They can't attack us here. They had to you know, sneak in here with visas and then steal our planes to have anything to crash into anything. So they have no army or navy or air force or anything like that. They had to provoke us and lure us in to replicate that same trap that the Americans had set for the Soviet Union. And so from bin Laden's point of view, it was worth it to betray Omar. To go ahead and do this, and so they attacked us. In fact, the Taliban had tried to warn us, as I show in the book. They didn't find out from Al Qaeda. Al Qaeda never told them, "Hey, we're about to attack the United States." They had found out from some Uzbek jihadis uh, that who had heard it through the grapevine that there was going to be an attack on the United States, but they didn't know who, or when, or what, or those details. But they tried to go and warn the United States that there's an impending terrorist attack. It was one of those bits of prior knowledge that the americans refused to pay any attention to in the lead up to the attack there and then more importantly or as importantly they surrendered the taliban didn't fight the united states the taliban withdrew they withdrew almost immediately when faced with uh the northern alliance the cia and air force backed northern alliance invasion of the capital city of kabul they just withdrew And then they withdrew from Kandahar City before the Americans even started bombing it as a symbol of, hey, look, okay, you win, whatever. And then when America installed the new government in Kabul, they recognized it as Islamic and legitimate. And the leader Karzai, he is the sock puppet of the Americans, of course, but he was a Popolzai Pashtun from Kandahar, which meant, well, he's acceptable, I guess. And so the Taliban did not say, oh, we will all fight to the death against you, infidel, blah, blah. It just goes to show again how they were not the same as Al-Qaeda. They never had um, that kind of policy, that they were trying to pick some international conflict with the United States. Radicals all become conservatives once they win, right? The Taliban had won. They'd almost finished conquering the whole country. Uh, they didn't want to give all that they had fought for up. and um, And then... Mullah Omar, after the war, uh, the initial stages of the war, he authorized his entire cabinet, basically, to surrender. And they all did. They all signed a big letter of surrender and agreed to America's terms. And then America hunted them all into insurgency anyway. Eventually, what happened was they picked a fight that then they couldn't win. They had the run of the place, but they ended up creating an insurgency by going out seeking bad guys to fight that now has bested them. I mean when you hear that uh the Taliban now control more of Afghanistan than they have since any time since two thousand one, I got bad news for you, cousin. America's been there this whole time, right? Obama didn't withdraw. Obama escalated up to a hundred thousand and then he did withdraw most of those back down to ten thousand. But then again, the military promised him don't worry, by then we will have won our counterinsurgency doctrine and we'll have trained up an army to clear, hold, build, and transfer all of our successes too. And so it was supposed to be fine. And even then we've had drone assets and special operations forces and you know, other American air power and at least some infantry in the country this whole time. And the Taliban now control... You know, they say 40% of it, it's probably 60% at night and 40% in the daytime. And as even the American generals have admitted, the Taliban, not that they're good people or not that the people of even the Pashtun regions really like them, but they prefer them to us. And they prefer specifically their local court systems, their, their local mechanisms for dispute resolution in a criminal and in a civil type of a manner is far more accordance with the people's wishes than the sock puppet criminal governments and police forces and courts that the Americans have tried to foist on them. There's just no question that they would prefer the law of the Taliban because at least they're from there, obviously, and I'll stop talking now, but, you know, you did ask a big question, so that's my excuse for talking so long. No, that. Was-
0: that's what I wanted. I I I wanted like a like a big uh you know, big big picture debunking, right? So what do you think were I, I know there's no single answer to this and you, you talk about several different ones in the book, but what do you think are some of the most important motivations why the people who hold power within uh the US government A wanted to go into Afghanistan like that And B, ended up making the decisions they made as far as, you know, the occupation and whatever the hell it was they were trying to accomplish. Well,
1: I mean, I think to try to be fair, I guess, you know, some – I mean, I I make the case in the book that they could have negotiated and the Taliban were willing to negotiate and turn over al-Qaeda. and. The American people and the American government wanted war instead. And not that this is any excuse, but I guess I'd have to admit that probably because I don't think any of us can really know this, that but probably if I have to give them a quote unquote benefit of the doubt that there were people inside the Bush administration who thought that, you know, come on. It doesn't matter if there is an Imperial Japan standing behind this Pearl Harbor like attack or not. We're going to have to take this out on somebody. Right. Somebody's getting bombed for this. You can't just have a trial. That won't be enough for to satisfy the revenge or even I don't know. I'm sure they thought Al Qaeda certainly and probably go ahead and lump in the Taliban to need to pay for this. When, in fact, they just, they really didn't. The Taliban would have turned al-Qaeda over. The Americans could have prosecuted them and sent them all to prison. They'd be sitting in Florence, Colorado right now with Ramsey Youssef. Um, but uh, Khalid Sheikh Mohammed's nephew, by the way, who's been convicted and sentenced to life in prison. Um, but, you know, I mean, I think it's fair to say, well, like one anecdote I tell in the book is that they wanted to attack Iraq so bad that Tony Blair felt like he had to interrupt them and say, guys, guys, wait, listen. I mean, at least promise me we're going to hit Afghanistan, Taliban, Al-Qaeda first. And then Iraq, right? So right. So at that point, you're in my discussion about whether to attack Afghanistan at all or not, or whether to negotiate is a completely moot point. The question is whether they're going to bother going after the perpetrators at all, or whether they're just going to, you know, uh, try to make Saddam uh, the guilty party and go after him. And Tony Blair felt like he had to intervene and tell them, guys, guys. So, you know, that's I don't want to I hope I don't sound like I'm letting them off the hook for thinking they had to do a thing that I think was wrong. But I think in context, it's pretty understandable. It was after all, at the time of the start of the war, people thought that it still could have been 10 or 15 or maybe 20,000 people dead and. The World Trade Center, nobody knew exactly how many people had gotten out or were still dead or whatever that I don't think they came out with the number 3000 for a while. And that was such a traumatic experience for everybody. Um, That was a big part of it. But then again, on the inside of the administration, Condoleezza Rice, just for one, was arguing, man, we should not bomb the Taliban. We should just if we're going to bomb anybody, we should just bomb Al Qaeda because we want to split the Taliban from Al Qaeda we want to turn the taliban against them so we can negotiate with the taliban and donald rumsfeld and george bush both said no we don't want to look like we're pounding sand we don't want there are, there are no good Tal, uh no good al qaeda targets to hit i mean we're talking about foot soldiers and only a few hundred of them at that who you know basically just bin laden and his crew uh there's really nothing to launch a war against there and so and it's you know if we're going to go at all, we're going to at least call in the B-52s and we're going to carpet bomb something. And from there, of course, once the bombs started falling, that was the last of the opportunity to negotiate with the Taliban to get rid of Al-Qaeda, at least, you know, at that point. And then by the end of the year, Al-Qaeda had escaped. And I have a whole treatment about the escape from Tora Bora in the book as well. And once they had gone, basically the mission was, well, I don't know, just stay here and fight terror which means anyone who resists. And if anybody fights us, then they're the Taliban, they're terrorists, and we'll fight them. And then the more we do that, the more enemies we have to fight. And, of course, then they created a government in Kabul, which meant that anyone who's the enemy of the people that we were putting in power of Kabul then became the Taliban terrorists who must be destroyed as well. So you have the you know American soldiers in the early years going around and just taking care of, well, probably the whole time, I guess, but going around and taking care of business for their temporary allies in ways that just make matters far, far worse. People are familiar maybe with the documentary. uh, There's two of them actually, Korengal and Restrepo. I guess it's Restrepo and then Korengal, about the army soldiers fighting in the Korengal Valley. And as Gopal shows in his book, and I cite him in mine, the whole conflict in the Korengal Valley started... When one businessman hired the Americans to destroy his competition, to kill a tribal chief, he was a timber. he was in the timber business. Um, and he needed a tribal chief out of his way, and he needed some competing uh, lumbermen out of his way. Is that what you call? Him? I don't know. And I'm from Texas.
0: Yeah, but I don't know either. Uh,
1: so he hired the Americans, and he said, "Yeah, those guys are all Taliban terrorist enemies kill them." And so the Americans did. And then they had bought themselves years of war in the Korangal Valley against completely isolated, helpless civilian villagers who never had the slightest thing to do with anyone who had the slightest thing to do with anyone who had ever attacked us at all. They're just, you know, in fact, those people in the Korangal Valley, particularly when the Americans came, they thought they were the Russians yeah, because no, they're that, so that isolated there. They didn't know that the Russians had left 10 years before or that the Americans had invaded a few years since, you know.
0: Right. Yeah. I mean, it just shows you they're even maybe more ignorant about us than we are about them. And that's that's saying something.
1: I had a line in there where I said these people may have never even heard of the new world before. But I took that out because I didn't want to sound like I'm too patronizing, like I'm teaching, I'm treating them like children here or whatever, when that is not my point. You know, my point is, here are people who are the living embodiment of mining their own business. And why are we killing them? Right? Who cares if they ever heard of the New World or not, other than the fact that people from the New World
0: are killing them. And under what possible reason that anyone could justify? So once Team America's in, then you have just tons of mission creep. Then you have lots of like what you illustrated with the story about the uh, the timber guy um, where, you know, people are people are ratting each other out um, saying, oh, this guy over here is a terrorist. And it's really just some personal beef or some tribal beef or whatever. And let me add
1: right here, too, that that shouldn't I don't want anyone to get the wrong impression there either that, yeah, well, they're a society backstabbing rats kind of thing. What they are is they're living in a war zone. They're living in absolute desperation. And so their choices uh, that they have, you know, available are very few. And a lot of times things like using the North American invaders against your old enemy across the hill is the only choice you have in a situation like that. So it's not like, you know, they're dishonorable people just because, oh, there's some primitive thing or anything like that. And I, I hope the book didn't come across that way. I tried to make it real clear that this is the most this is a desperately poor country and then we are putting it through the absolute most dire of circumstances on top of that
0: yeah well what it looked like to me was not not that it was like a specific indictment of of them what it looked like to me and maybe this is this is just my history background is right away it's it's something you see anytime there is kind of an outside group that conquers a place and occupies it which is It's whoever you're taking over is never um, a unified group, even if it looks like it on the map. And so it's going to, to some degree, kind of devolve into, um, you know, the occupying force kind of getting um, playing different groups off against each other and and getting used themselves, you know, uh, by one group against the other. I mean, you can even see these similar things happening, like when Cortez conquered the Aztecs or... When Julius Caesar uh, co- uh, conquered the Gauls, you know, where once you're in, then, then sometimes, like, you know, one of the indigenous groups will actually kind of sick the occupier on another indigenous group and that kind of thing. I mean, it, it, all this stuff to me, it just, a, as a history guy, the the big picture of, of it, it really bothers me because it's all just so predictable. I mean, it's predictable in the sense of, like, this is what these kinds of, um, you know – violent occupations always lead to these sorts of things and it's also so predictable in the specific case of afghanistan i mean it's a cliche it's literally the graveyard of empires you know um i've i've read things said by uh soviet political and military leaders you know around the time they left afghanistan and the soviet union was collapsing and it's incredible some of the things that some of them said in hindsight they were like man, we really lost our grip with reality to think we could just, you know, occupy and, and remake Afghanistan. Like, man, what were we thinking?
1: You know? Well, and I show in the book, too, that some of the KGB experts warned them not to invade in the first place because this would be completely stupid.
0: Right. Yeah. Although I'm guessing there must have been um, – uh, a lot of neocons in the administration who were like, well, if it's the Russians, we ought to do the opposite of what they say, right?
1: Yeah, no, but I mean KGB who warned the government, the Soviet government in 1980, 1979 and 80, not to do it. Oh, yeah. Before, yeah not okay. just, so they weren't just looking in hindsight. They actually, just like some of us predicted the worst here, some of them predicted the worst before they ever started that thing.
0: In fact, you know, the other war, the 80s war. Right, right. And and really to some extent, I mean you you bring up repeatedly in the book, which I appreciated, um parallels to Vietnam, right, where obviously it's not exactly the same thing in a lot of ways, but on the other hand there are some specific uh similarities. And seemed like to me a big one is that in both cases if you look back in the history of both countries, um Afghanistan and Vietnam, it's like they have a couple thousand years where their history basically consists of getting invaded by outsiders and then sooner or later fighting them off. I mean, that's you know, that's a lot of Vietnam's history and that's a lot of Afghanistan's history. You would think somebody would like go on the Wikipedia page for these places before they invaded them and just kind of say, "Huh. Um, you know, maybe maybe we don't want to invade a, a a country with difficult terrain and and people who have you know, a couple millennia of, of history of, of resisting occupation.
1: Well, and you know, I don't really talk about this in the book, but a big part of, in fact, I did in a part that I cut from the book, actually, about from the getting into this mess, I cut out the Iranian Revolution, the Iran-Iraq War, and the first Gulf War. But a big part of the first Gulf War was redeeming the war machine from Vietnam. And as soon as Saddam... Gave in and ordered his troops retreat from Kuwait, and Bush Sr. called off the war and declared victory. He gave a speech where he declared that we have finally beat Vietnam syndrome, meaning the American people's reluctance to have any more wars like this. And that was, you know, I think Robert Perry argues that was one of the primary reasons for the war, was man, if we could just do one good, quick one. That we can, you know, wrap up a victory, we'll get some yellow ribbons and we'll do all this. Then we can get the American people back into the spirit of this thing after that kind of that one didn't really work out so well there. And that was a big part of, you know, trying to set that precedent with the Soviet Union out of our way that from now on, this is going to be fun. There's even a great clip of um, Homer Simpson from a 90s episode saying, oh, honey, all all wars from the future will be fought by robots, and it'll be easy as turning on a light, you know, and all that, because that was the idea. We're not going to do big invasions and get all our infantry killed. We're just going to use robots and maybe some special forces and and do whatever we want. No Americans will ever die in a war again, right? Remember
0: Kosovo? <laughs> we'll kill them, but they can't touch us. We're killing from 45,000 feet. Yeah, I mean, is is that why... I mean the body count hasn't been for for Americans nearly as huge as Vietnam. Um, but you know, it's been a few thousand and Yeah, that was the only lesson, right? Is we can't have
1: body counts like that. Otherwise go ahead.
0: Yeah, well it's that was the big
1: victory of the first Gulf War. Fifty thousand of them died, seventy nine of our guys died. One scud missile, right?
0: Yeah, you can't have big body count and you also can't have the draft that's i think the other the other big lesson they took from vietnam was you can't have a draft um because i'd imagine if they were drafting people and i and i am by no means saying this as a as a defense or support of the draft but you know hypothetically if they brought back the draft for afghanistan and all these other places i'd imagine that you know suddenly everyone would really give a shit about the war in Afghanistan. Suddenly people would be, you know, give peace a chance. I'm not so sure. I mean,
1: right away you'd have a whole vast new supply of infantry to double your surge in your counterinsurgency hearts and minds operation, and now you have a lot of people who are invested in the war and the success and the future. And and people, you know, our history is full of senators sending their sons to die in these things. Proudly and honorably and blah, blah like that. That's why Jack Kennedy was the president because his older brother Joe died in one of the wars, uh, which actually Jack had fought in too. So that could really backfire, I think, (laughs) the whole draft. I know you're not supporting it, but I'm just saying even hypothetically speaking, I'm not so sure it's a good idea because even still, you know, taking into account the draft in Vietnam and all that, it was the body count. It was people who were drafted and then killed. That was what was bothering everybody so much. But people like sacrificing and asking not what they can get, but what they can do for their you know collective thing they're identifying with. And that kind of thing frightens me a lot.
0: Well, getting back to uh, some of like the motivations for kind of keeping this thing going as long as it has, um, one that you talk about a lot and, and give a lot of you know examples of, and that you you alluded to a little while ago is. Making money, um, all the various special interests that are that are making money off of this whole thing. So, um, what are what are some of like your, your favorite examples that illustrate this?
1: Well, first and foremost, just the generals in themselves. You know, the more stars you get, the better seat you get on a board of directors when you quote unquote retire and cash in. And even while you're still in the better golf courses you get access to in Hawaii and whatever. I mean, these guys really live like princes Um, and you get your ticket punched. That's what they call it. You know, you go and do your thing and send somebody else to go and fight and you get more power. And so um, I'm a real class war guy when it comes to enlisted versus officers. You know, I just uh, especially the higher ranking ones, um, I guess that's left over from when I used to listen to Colonel David Hackworth in the nineteen nineties who always talked about it like the enlisted are the American people. The officers are the government. You know, which um and they're a bunch of self interested bureaucrats. It's exactly what they are, just like any other bureaucrat. And same thing goes for the CIA and, you know, everybody else in all the intelligence community in the deep state itself. Well, I shouldn't even say the deep state, the agencies themselves, the bureaucracies themselves, because the deep state then also includes the banks that cash in off of all that government debt and off of all just the con, just, you know, Lockheed has an account at the chase, right? So whenever the government is doing a big transfer from the treasury to the chase, they get a cut of that. So all, you know, the banks should be included in on all military spending because there's a percent in there for them always. And, Then you have Lockheed and Raytheon and General Dynamics and Boeing and uh, SIAC and all the new, you know, as as, uh, even very mainstream journalists have put it, it's not just the military industrial complex now. You have an entire Homeland Security industrial complex since 9-11. That's basically the domestic mirror image version of the war state left over from World War II still that we're burdened here with. And so, you know, ultimately, it's just it's the same as any special interest politics. It's no different than any other thing. It's you know, they get these companies get billions of dollars of transfers from the national government in for, you know, building these weapons. And then they can spend the tiniest fraction of a percentage of that money on lobbying in order to make sure that the policies continue and that they're. Uh, interests continue to be satisfied. Their crappy products continue to be bought by the captive market. That is the Pentagon and the American people. And it's a racket. It's as simple as that. And, you know, Nick Terse wrote this great book about, I don't know how many years ago now called the complex. Cause he says, you know, the problem is, is it's not just the military industrial complex, right? It's the military, industrial, corporate, academic, media, tube socks and toothpaste and everything complex because really any company in America that has anything that could possibly apply as a dual use item will try to get a Pentagon contract. They'd be crazy not to. You're telling me you have a boot company, but you're not trying to sell your boots to the army and the Marines. You, you know, that's the huge cash cow. So even if it's just toothpaste and tube socks, even if it's just buttons, for military shirts we're talking millions and millions and millions of dollars and all you know tiny everybody involved in that gives a tiny little bit back in the form of lobbying and pressure to keep the racket going at the expense of the rest of us and then they get to wrap it all up in american flags and chanting and songs and marble statues and all these things and and of course hide like cowards behind the Idle soldier, the 19 year old, best and brightest, willing to go off and serve to fight for his country and their freedom and all these lies that they tell him. And then they hide behind that and say, oh, man, you have to support our horrible war or else you're betraying the soldier when look who's betraying the soldier, sending him off on a fool's errand. I'm sorry, I don't mean to be corporate about that, (laughs) but it is. That's exactly what it is. Sending you're sending him to Afghanistan to remake Afghanistan, to defeat Taliban insurgency that you can't defeat, that will not negotiate with you, that you already lost the war against. You're gonna keep sending people's kids. You know, this is getting around, they're making political cartoons about it. This is a real thing. In the year 2017, we're recording this interview. There are kids who were toddlers, literally two and three years old in diapers, who have died fighting as army. Green Berets, special forces in Nangarhar province, against supposed Islamic State targets. When in fact, they're still just local Pashtun fighters. They're not ISIS international terrorists at all. Whole thing is a crock. And and these kids were kids when this war started. Like, I mean, not even kids, right? Kids starts when you're four or five. <laughs> these are babies um, now dying in this thing. And and you know what? And here's what TV will never just say, which is what we all already know, which is this is all David Petraeus's fault. Whatever happened to Jesus sent him to save everything with his magical powers. Isn't that what they all told us in 2009, that David Petraeus and Stanley McChrystal were these magic men, that they were the Terminator, that they never eat. And all they do is jog around because they have so much energy that they're going to use to win this war with. That that previous general, he just wasn't a go-getter enough. Now we got good go-getter McChrystal in there, and he's going to clear, hold, and build, and transfer a whole new country over there. Don't we remember that that's what they said? So when that doesn't work, we just have to let them go anyway and try again? Can we at least fire the Pentagon and hire some other military to try to do it then? I mean, what in the world are we doing? That we would let McMaster who was the lick spittle, oh, I'm sorry, I mean the, you know, patron and student of Petraeus and McChrystal, now fail at the same thing they failed to do, only with a tenth as many troops. The whole thing yes. is completely stupid. It's like they're just lying right to your face. They're just saying, you know what? We want money, we want to keep fighting, and we want you to not complain about it, okay? That's what they're saying. And if you need some lies as
0: excuses, we have a few of those for you. Were you at all surprised? I mean, I really wasn't, but and I'm guessing probably you weren't, but were you at all surprised when um when Trump made his announcement a week or whenever it was ago, basically, you know how I kind of sort of implied I might get us out of maybe some of these things? Well, we're doubling down on afghanistan afghanistan what was What was your reaction to that announcement? Was it pretty yeah. much just par for the course? Yeah, I mean, I think if
1: you have the very first version of the book there, you'll see when you get to the final chapter that or final two little sub chapters there that I say, yeah, you know, he's going to end up giving in. But I do tell the story of the first half of this year and how he didn't want to give in and how ever since March, at least he's put these guys off Madison McMaster and told them, no, no, no. And he he this is I don't think just PR, you know, I think he had Bannon at his side, tell him, yeah, you're right, let's not. And so he was he had, you know, at least a little bit of backup and he was standing up against the generals. They thought they were gonna get approval for the next increase back in March. And he kicked the can down the road and down the road. And they're gonna announce it right before the big NATO meeting. Okay, they're gonna announce it right after the Big NATO meeting. Okay, they're gonna announce it at the end of June. Okay, they're gonna announce it in the middle of July. And it was only at the end I did predict you'll see and I have updated it now to reflect his speech and what he announced, but I didn't have to change very much at all. Um, I just had to change future tense to past tense for the most part um, and then he went ahead and he gave in anyway to the McMaster strategy he didn't even really modify it at all and the McMaster strategy is really what I just summed up just keep fighting with a little bit of yeah right ask the Pakistanis to stop backing our allies the Pakistanis to stop backing our enemies the Afghan Taliban when they're just not going to do that and The Americans this whole time have acted as though the Pakistanis are, I don't know, just imaginary creatures that they can just will to behave certain ways or whatever. And they, in fact, they don't even take the Pakistani's motives into account really at all. I show in the book there at the end that the brilliant genius think tank lady who wrote the big doctrine that McMaster adopted, he hired her. Her name's Lisa Curtis, a former CIA analyst and she's at the Hudson Institute. She wrote this big thing about what our strategy should be for getting the Pakistanis to cooperate with us on Afghanistan and he put her on the National Security Council in charge of coming up with all of this policy and Mattis has already begun implementing that policy such as withholding some aid money from the Pakistanis and this kind of thing. And you know, I've read the thing, and I analyze it in the book there, and it's a crock. Um, they, she completely refuses to recognize all the different ways that the Pakistanis have a fighting back against us, whatever we do against them. And first and foremost, and primarily, they can cut off the road from the Port of Karachi through the Khyber Pass and into Afghanistan. It's a landlocked country, and we got to go through Pakistan. They did this. They cut us off for a year in 2012 when Obama tried cracking down on them for supporting the Afghan Taliban then. And so, um, and then at the same time, and really this is the first point I should have made, she refuses in there to even acknowledge the Pakistani interest in their primary, their core foreign policy security doctrine interest in supporting the Afghan Taliban, which is to prevent the government we have installed in Kabul from ever succeeding in creating a true monopoly state there because those groups are allied with the Indians. And the Pakistanis, in the event of a full-scale war, even a nuclear war with India, have as their what's called strategic depth, their backyard to retreat to is through the Khyber Pass into Afghanistan. And they can't let the Indians have them surrounded on both sides. Here, the Americans are working hard, and Trump even announced in his speech, you might have noted, we're going to have the Indians intervene more and do more, which is only absolutely bound to provoke the Pakistanis to back the Afghan Taliban even more to prevent the success of that. And what Curtis writes, and this is the lady who um, McMaster is listening to, who Trump is listening to here, says, yeah, you know, America's interest in backing the Indians in Afghanistan is not quite does not quite comport perfectly with what Pakistani wishes are, or some kind of thing like that, where she just totally blows it off. She refuses to explain that this is a core interest of the Pakistani state, and that they have not been willing to give it up for George Bush or Barack Obama so far, no matter carrots or sticks, and you know. You might ask, and it's, it's really insane to think about the fact that we are supporting one ally against, uh, against our enemy, but that is provoking our other ally to support our enemy against us and our first ally in a perpetual motion machine. It just goes around and around and around. And it's, it's, it's 2017. So yeah, around and around and around and around and around and more and now this is their policy is they're going to bring in more indian intervention while at the same time threatening the pakistanis they better stop trying to counter it
0: are are the people calling the shots i mean if you had to guess it, it, it seems to me it's a classic case of stupidity or the plan where it's like are the people calling the shots within the u.s government that strategically just dumbass or do they understand how how self-contradictory all this is and they just don't particularly care because they want the war to just kind of grind on on, on a low burner for some some ulterior motive whatever that might be i think it's mostly both right i mean <laughs> some of them both. some of them get it and some of them you
1: couldn't beat it into their head with a waterboard i mean it does seem like they play this down i mean barack obama and his you know, team, they certainly understood the problem. They just didn't know what to do about it. You know? I think um, as Patrick Coburn has written, the Bush guys started to understand what was going on, at least you know, in the second term. By 2007, I think he says, almost the end of Bush, that they started figuring out just how important Pakistani intervention on the side of the Afghan Taliban was, but they couldn't figure out an effective way of dealing with it either. I mean, Barack Obama in fact, he made a deal with the Pakistanis. You let us kill al-Qaeda guys with our CIA drones, and we will help you kill Pakistani Taliban guys. And so that was the deal they made. and But it, it didn't include, you got to stop supporting the Afghan Taliban, which was the problem in Afghanistan, assuming you wanted to continue having that war at all. Um, and in fact, what they did was, they did end up killing... Almost all of the last of the Al Qaeda guys hiding out with the Pakistani Taliban inside Pakistan, but they also chased a bunch of Pakistani Taliban into Afghanistan, where then this is a group that has now broken off and declared themselves the Islamic State in Nangarhar Province that we were talking about a minute ago. That they're still just locals, but they're they're former members of the Pakistani Taliban now coming and uh, into Afghanistan, fleeing Obama's Pakistan policy into Afghanistan. And then now caught between the Taliban and the government that the U.S. has created there.
0: Um, One thing that I wanted to ask you about for sure um, that I don't know if – I don't think I've gotten to in the book yet. Um, I'm maybe somewhere around two-thirds to three-quarters, I think, through it at at the moment. But um, I don't think I've yet got to the place where you kind of get into it in depth, and that's the question of Heroin what's what's the basic story as far as the heroin angle in this whole thing because you hear a lot of different things about it
1: yeah well i won't claim to have written the best little section on heroin ever or whatever i i have a lot of questions myself i think what everybody wants to know is exactly what are the american cia and the american and allied bankers role in all of this um b c c i days and iran contra and and the old golden triangle and all that, of course.
0: Yeah, yeah, all that, like all that stuff. stuff
1: that- that I think, to me, I sort of differentiate in a way. I don't know if this makes sense, but during Iran Contra, the Boland Amendment prevented Congress was was refusing to fund CIA covert action. So they were selling drugs so they could afford the covert action. In this case, they got a blank check, so it's not like they need the CIA needs the money in order to implement their policy, right? They can do whatever they want over there. So if the CIA is much involved in the actual trafficking, I, first of all, don't know that. And I would think that it's probably more individuals in certain departments and or maybe it's just their retirement program for all the boys. I don't know exactly how it works. But I haven't really seen much evidence of that. But on the other hand, I I'm suspicious of it. And I plead ignorance, too, because I haven't read all of Peter Dale Scott, which I should have by now. He's really the expert on this. And, and I really just don't know. And all the stuff that I read about heroin in Afghanistan doesn't really get into that very much. It seems like there's just, you know, maybe not that much to write about it. But on the other hand, I'm not trying to play it down either. The, the real bottom line is that it doesn't need to be secret because the entire policy is putting heroin dealers in power as governors and as police chiefs and as parliamentarians. The entire government we built is a bunch of heroin dealers. And the Taliban-led insurgency, it's not all Taliban, the Pashtun-based insurgency and especially the Taliban, they all deal heroin too. It's about a $4 billion a year industry in Afghanistan. It's more than half of their entire gross domestic product and um maybe more than that hope i got my numbers right for you there but uh everybody can read all about it um uh at uh the, the un actually does uh, real good reports about this and just came out with one pretty recently too, updating all the numbers on the the gdp percentages and all this and that but what i'm really trying to get to is not the like oh i don't think the cia is dealing drugs this time it's more like Hey, guys, the CIA just installed a governor in X province who's nothing but a heroin dealer. Right. David Petraeus, favorite warlord down in Kandahar province was this guy, Abdul Razak, who is nothing but a criminal. And heroin was a big part of his trade. Uh, Wali Ahmed Karzai, who was uh, Hamid Karzai's brother. And was the warlord, not the official governor, but the warlord who truly ruled Kandahar City for years there. He's now been murdered. But he was the biggest heroin kingpin in the country. And so, you know, I'm not saying, hey, you know, don't worry about the CIA doing secret heroin. I'm saying, hey, look, it's not secret. (laughs) The whole war is based on poppies. Now, it doesn't mean... That that's the reason for the war. I don't mean based on it in that sense. I just mean all sides are funded by it. It's it's the supermajority of the whole economy of the country in the north and the south, government-controlled areas and all the other ones too. And in fact, this is not the whole history of Afghanistan. This is all a legacy of war of America's intervention and war in that country, really specifically, um, or at least in somewhat part of it from the very beginning. Hekmatyar. Uh, Gubadine Hekmachar is a very powerful and terrible warlord there, um, and has been for a very long time. Uh, he actually worked f- directly for the CIA and was one of the major kingpins getting the ball rolling on the heroin trade in Afghanistan back in the 1980s. And then, and Alfred McCoy, the author of the Politics of Heroin about Southeast Asia, and a ton of, and great books about torture, and also. Uh, a ton of great articles about Afghanistan and heroin for TomDispatch dot com. Uh, Alfred McCoy, the great professor McCoy. Um,
0: yeah, he, yeah, I'm a, I'm a fan of his work.
1: Um, of course. Um, uh, just making sure for whoever's doing the show notes here. Um, yeah, yeah. And, and he's written quite a bit, and I cite him in the book about how he says that heroin, the poppy, was the sword to to cut through the Gordian knot of the crisis of Afghan poverty in the situation of the permanent war that they were in and all different sides had a lot of blame to go around and that kind of thing. Um, the Taliban had cut down all the trees on the Shamali Plain, um, and you know, all kinds of other things, but basically nobody had anything left to grow that could possibly compete in the marketplace other than poppies. And so it's, in the largest macro sense and in a very narrow sense it's america's policy that has led to this and of course this includes you know a heroin i don't know how bad of a crisis i don't like playing into panics about drug use but it seems like you know black market heroin abuse in america and europe and russia i don't know about china but presumably in china too they're right there on the border that all around the world um black market heroin abuse is getting worse. I don't know about out of control and all those terms, but certainly getting worse. And where do we think all that's coming from? When year after year after year, they have record crops there.
0: Yeah, well, um, like I said, I've not quite finished the book. I haven't read the last few chapters, but I wanted to ask you, if you had to use your crystal ball, um, how would you predict that this ends? In other words, does it take, like, almost like a Soviet-style uh, bankruptcy and collapse on the part of the American Empire um, in order for the American occupation of Afghanistan to finally come to an end? Or Do you think there's a snowball's chance in hell that it might be done in a more kind of sensible and deliberate fashion before it comes to that? Or do you think uh, we're we're doomed? Like, the Soviet Union lost the Cold War first, but we're getting close to losing it second.
1: Yeah, you know, I don't know, man. Honestly... You know, we had our chance twice. We had Ron Paul run for president and say it and really mean it, that he would use his authority to end the empire. That was it. It was his first order of business. And people say, "Ooh, you're one of them cold-hearted right-wing libertarians. What are you going to do to our Social Security? And he would say, I'm going to abolish the empire so I can shore up Social Security. And the American people told him to go to hell, quite frankly twice. And so look at where we are now, where, you know, Donald Trump isn't even bizarro Ron Paul, right? He's just, he's just Donald Trump. He ain't got a thing to do with that kind of point of view whatsoever. And whatever, I think his previous position against Afghanistan began as just an attack against Obama. And then I think he did come to believe it because he's right after all, that it's a mistake and, well, to put it as polite as possible, that it's a mission that cannot be accomplished, etc. And um, at one point, he even actually ended up defending Obama from the generals and saying, Obama's right to order an end to the surge. It's time to end this war. You know, he would go farther than Obama, but do so in a supportive way a couple of times. But, you know, ultimately, look at who we're talking about here. He's a hawk on virtually everything. His generals want to do something. It's just the first year of his presidency. So, and he even said this in his speech, and this is an absolute terrible political dynamic. that He said in his speech, look at what happened in Iraq. Obama pulled out of there, and then we got ISIS. Oh, yeah, just skip the part about Obama backed ISIS in Syria for years, years. High treason of the highest order for years with billions of CIA dollars and guns before the Islamic State ever conquered Western Iraq. But oh well, never mind that. Every single human in D.C. is guilty of that. And so instead we'll say Obama ever pulling troops out of Iraq at all, however temporarily – That's what caused the rise of ISIS. And everyone in D.C. agrees about that because that way um, it's only they tried to do the right thing one time that caused a bad thing to happen. If they ever supported withdrawal there and now they can deny they ever did. Um, But in fact, it was Obama's high treason and support for the Islamic State and the Al-Nusra Front Al-Qaeda suicide bomber killers that uh, led to the rise of ISIS. But anyway, Trump invoked that in his speech and he said so. You know, therefore, what am I going to do? Leave Afghanistan when then people calling themselves ISIS and Al Qaeda could claim, ha, look at me. I'm in Afghanistan. You left and I'm still here. And so can't have that. So what's better than that? Stay forever, fight forever, because then Lindsey Graham can never make fun of him. And then and nobody else cares. And so all his political capital is spare. It's the same, somewhat the same dynamic as Obama. All the liberals and leftists were so in love with Obama, they didn't care who he killed. Washington indict all the leftists. All the liberals, they didn't care who Obama killed. He was Obama. And so that uh, war was completely off of their radar. And at the same time, he was appeasing the Republicans by doubling the war instead of withdrawing. I don't know if he was appeasing the conservatives, but they didn't really care that much about Afghanistan anyway at that point. But now the position Trump is in is that if he ends this war... Probably the liberals are going to say he did it because of Russia, 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 and made him do it so that they could take over again, and so we should double the war there, and um, and then the Lindsey Graham's and John McCain, uh, you know, and the neocon hawks will blame everything that explodes in Afghanistan from now on on him. So I think, in other words, I got no good news for you because it would have taken Ron Paul to say I don't care what you accuse me of, forget it, we're leaving. I don't care. I'm, and sorry for stuff blowing up over there, but that's all Bush's fault for getting us into this mess. And that's what Donald Trump could say right now. That's what he could have said in his speech. Instead of, I'm giving in to McMaster and Madison and the escalation, he could have said, listen, the Pashtun tribesmen of Afghanistan are not our enemies. And look, the government in Kabul, that's the Bush-Obama government in Kabul. And obviously, that idiot and that weak loser created this thing that cannot stand. And so why should I, on behalf of all of you, you know, continue this, you know, terrible policy of trying to build something that we know cannot last on its own? This is crazy. So, bye. And if you don't like the results, you can blame it all on Bush and Obama because it is all their fault. Instead, he went, oh, okay, I guess it belongs to me now and has carried it on. Then again, he is Donald Trump, so he could flip-flop right again, you know, next month. I'm not saying I think he will or would, but I'm saying he could even get away with it. He could say, "You know what? I changed my mind. That Afghanistan thing is stupid. It's Bush and Obama's fault. Let's cancel it." Psh, good enough for me. Good enough for me. And I don't, you know, there's just nobody in D.C. who believes that. Bannon was the closest thing to that point of view in the White House, and he wanted to put all the mercenaries in charge. And then they got rid of him anyway. So that's a moot point. It's going to be the army and the marines. The army back to Nangahar and the marines back to Helmand to just keep fighting and accomplish nothing except getting killed, killing people and getting killed.
0: Yeah, well isn't that Horton's law that uh presidents will always deliver on all the bad stuff that they uh, say they're going to do and and not any of the good stuff. Pretty much. Yeah, if I'm if I'm quoting that one correctly. Got it right, man. Yeah, well um is there there any anything else uh, you you think uh, that you'd really like to share with the listeners um any any other like important point or tidbit or anything like that you'd uh that we haven't gotten to no not really i mean i guess
1: i would just try to emphasize that it shouldn't be too hard to bother us to just pay a little bit of attention to these things you know the media and the state they always try to monopolize caring as a cost of spelly, you know, if you care about the Afghan people, we have to continue waging this war against them forever because the accepted, unstated, unproven premise, of course, is that whoever we kill, it's always to the good. It's always ultimately for some good, like that time we saved France from the Nazis or, you know, some mythology. And yet the reality of this war is it's an absolute horror show. And, you know, I'm from Texas and and so wherever in America you guys are from it doesn't matter that you're from here that doesn't mean that that you have to you know stop your thinking at oh well i was born on this team i mean i guess if people are listening to this podcast they already can think past that kind of, those kind of notions anyway but you know it's fair to compare the atrocities committed by the US government with the worst governments in history they are bloody murderers, and and the legacy of destruction that they leave behind them is for the ages. There's just no question about it. I mean, this stuff is going to go down in history forever, as that time the Americans absolutely ruined the beginning of the 21st century because they thought they were so damned important. And, you know, for shame. What the hell is going on around here? You know, it, Afghanistan is one of the poorest countries in the world, but look also what we're doing to Yemen and to Somalia. I mean, these are the weakest, crappiest little countries in the world. And we are the superpower, the hyperpower, Gorka says. We're number one. We're the world empire. Russia and China quake at our power. And we're fighting Somalia? We're fighting Somalis? It's not right. You know, I saw a thing where Richard Pryor and I tried to look, I couldn't find it again. It's he's wearing all red, but there's about five of those, but there, it must've been from 1984 or six. I'm sorry. must've been from 86 when Reagan bombed Libya and Richard Pryor's in the middle of a set and everybody's laughing and he goes, Hey, hold on a second. Let me ask you something. Hey, we're America, right? America. And everybody audience goes, yeah, USA, America, America. And he goes, I'm with that. I believe in that too. You know, I, yeah. he goes, we, and we fired tough guys, right? Like the Nazis and the Japanese and the Russians. And everybody goes, yeah, 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 yeah. And he goes, so I don't understand, man. How come we're bombing Libya? Isn't that some weak, crappy little country that can't possibly fight back against us? Does that sound right to you? And the audience goes, huh, Richard Pryor, now that you mention it, Libya is a crappy little country, isn't it? That's not a fair fight, is it? That's not a pick on a country your own size. That's us acting like the English. That's us being the bad guy. And then he goes, okay, now back to jokes. That was it. There was no joke. Just what in the world are we doing? It's wrong. Why is it so hard to see? Oh, I was born in Texas, so I have to side with Obama when he murders somebody?
0: It's stupid. Oh, and I'm sick of it. And everybody else should be too by now. Yeah, well, I definitely am. Probably most of the people who who would listen to this podcast probably feel pretty similarly. But um, it's been uh, great talking to you, and I just want to thank you very much, number one, for writing this book, which uh, I, I urge everyone to go get a copy of, and number two, for coming on the show today. Thank you very much for having me. It's out in Kindle, everybody. Alright, and once again, I want to thank Scott for coming on, and I want to urge everybody who's even remotely interested in getting all kinds of dirty little details about America's war in Afghanistan to check out Scott's book, Fool's Errand, Time to End the War in Afghanistan. It is just a knowledge bomb on this topic. Pretty much guarantee that you'll learn stuff. That even if you've been following current events closely since 2001, you'll still learn a bunch of stuff you probably didn't know. And stay tuned, shouldn't be long now until I can finally get that episode about the grunt's eye perspective of the Nazo civil war done. I am hard at work at it, have been spending countless hours on research and notes and whatnot, and so hopefully won't be too long now until I'm ready to lay it down. Thank you for listening to the Dangerous History Podcast. Check out the website, profcj.org, or you can just put in dangeroushistorypodcast.com to get the show notes for this and every other Dangerous History Podcast episode. While you're there, you can email subscribe to the site over in the right-hand side, and if you put in your email address there and subscribe, you won't get any spam or anything like that from me, no junk email. You'll simply get an email notification every time something new is posted at my website. You can follow me and the show on Facebook and Twitter as well, and you can subscribe to the podcast in iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, however you prefer to consume your podcasts. If you enjoy and appreciate this show, there are many different ways you can help me keep this show going, growing, and constantly improving. One easy way is simply to spread the word about the Dangerous History Podcast to those you think might appreciate it who don't already know about it. And you can also help the show out by leaving ratings or reviews in venues such as iTunes, which helps the podcast get ranked more highly. If you would like to help out the show financially, there are many ways to do so, and you'll find them at profcj.org donate. And one of the best most helpful is to sign up to support the show via patreon at patreon.com slash and if you pledge a contribution of at least five dollars per month or more you'll have access to bonus episodes that i publish in patreon available nowhere else as well as the ability to join the dangerous history podcast scholar warriors private facebook group you can also make one-time or recurring donations via PayPal, and you can donate via Bitcoin as well. And of course, if you buy things from any of my Amazon affiliate links or my ABOoks affiliate links, go through those links, then do your shopping as normal, and the Dangerous History Podcast will get a small commission at no additional cost to you. This has been another episode of the Dangerous History Podcast, helping you learn the past so you can understand the present and prepare for the future.